On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. I'm Kyle. And uh, welcome. First, uh, before we get started, talking about what we're going to talk about tonight, give a brief thank you to everyone who participated and listened and listened and didn't. Oh, boy. Listened and didn't. Participated and listened to the Remembering Neil Pert episode. Uh, we got a really good response yeah, from that. Yeah, we did. Which is awesome. And we got some uh, great feedback recently from some new listeners about uh, some of our older episodes, and we're excited about that, so please keep that coming. Yes. Uh, we got a great letter from uh, David um, about our hair metal episode, uh, and he wrote, Hair metal was an overplayed, profitable formula that imploded on itself. No easier explanation than that. The vexing question of our generation is why we feel like music is so terrible today, and is that a reflection of our age? Why don't I get it? And more importantly, why can't I like this stuff even when I try? It has never been harder or easier to break into the music world today. Once you've gone viral, you're a valued commodity. Everyone is trying so hard to be different that it all just ends up being the same crap. The sea of music has become so vast and so copied that Billboard looks at downloads like they did record sales. If you're lucky enough to go viral, you may make the top 10 regardless of how forgettable your song is. My question for Matthew is this. In the last 15 years, what artist songs stayed in the top 10 the longest? Or shall I say, longer than a month or two? Michael, ja Michael Jackson probably lived in the top 10 for a decade of his life. True. I will forever hold on to bands like The Cars, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Buzzcocks, The Cult, and most of my favorites may fade into obscurity through the decades. But no one forgets the Beatles, Metallica, ACDC, Elton John, Michael Jackson, Mozart, Miles Davis, Elvis, etc. There are far more forgettable artists today than ever, and it is everywhere because we don't have to hunt for music anymore. It gets thrown in our face all the time. And I couldn't agree more. It's actually very true. It's a true statement. That's music is is has been a commodity, but it's no no more so than right now. Yes. Is it? just a commodity i think the big question from that is are we at the peak right now or are we still climbing because like uh some of the artists that we've interviewed mm -hmm. uh seem to think that we're we're close to the peak we're yes. almost there we're we're getting to that point where it's going to begin a downswing and people are going to begin wanting more curated music wanting you know better Quality over quantity, basically. I hope so. And I, I hope so, too. I hope we're there. Me, too. At least very, very close. If, um, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, please do. It's uh, The Day Hair Metal Died. It was episode number 14. 
And you can find that at www.audiojudo.com. Or pretty much anywhere else uh, podcasts are available. That as well. So we are also uh, about three quarters of the way through remodeling our new studio space, which is very exciting. It's nice in here now. If we sound a little different, a little more relaxed or what have you, that's probably why. Our butts are more comfortable than they used to be. Fancy chairs now. So we've gotten some new equipment, new environment. So we're excited about uh, what prospects lay ahead. And tonight we are talking about Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. Oh, no. Oh, no. Wrong album. Oh. We are t- it's a dark side. Nope. Nope. We are talking about Pink Floyd's. And nope. <laughs> a momentary lapse of reason. Uh, this was Pink Floyd's 13th studio album released on September 7th, 1987. And the first one without Roger Waters. That is correct. And I think to truly understand how this album was developed and the sounds associated with it, you have to go back a few years to about 1982. So Pink Floyd is post- the Wall, and its subsequent tour. Next thing on the agenda for Pink Floyd at the time was the development of The Wall movie, which had been pitched well before the record was even released. During the development of the movie, they determined that there would be a need to have additional music material. So Roger Waters was uh, uh, going to start working on a soundtrack album for the movie, which was entitled Spare Bricks. Hmm. And this was to have some re-recorded songs on it, like When the Tigers Broke Free, which eventually was re-recorded, as well as some new material to expand the narrative a little bit for a full-length movie. And it was just about this time that a messy little flap started to rear its ugly head in the South Atlantic Ocean called the Falkland Islands War. Hmm. Roger Waters, ever the anti-war artist, mainly as a result of him losing his father during World War II, which shaped most of his writing. He decided to change course, write new material about this new topic, more or less abandoning the spare bricks concept. So this started to take shape as the Floyd's next record, which would eventually be called The Final Cut, a Requiem for the Post-War Dream. Hmm. Roger Waters wrote this about the event. The Final Cut was about how... With the introduction of the welfare state, we felt we were moving forward into something resembling a liberal country where we would all look after one another. But I'd seen all that chiseled away, and I'd seen a return to an almost Dickensian society under Margaret Thatcher. I felt then, as now, that the British government should have pursued diplomatic avenues rather than steaming in the moment that task force arrived in the South Atlantic. So, you know, typical rock group stuff. Yeah. Geopoliticizing, Dickensian roots. Makes sense to me. Okay? Perfect. So they're getting ready to record this new record. David Gilmore is not very pleased at this moment about Roger Waters politicizing, and they fought a lot about the new direction. They ended up using, reusing five leftover tracks from The Wall and Spare Bricks, and Gilmore was of the opinion that if they weren't good enough to be on the last album, why are they good enough to be on this one? We should record all new material. Waters would comment later that Gilmore's contributions had been less than stellar, called him lazy Hmm. at the time. Needless to say, recording sessions did not go well. Tension was everywhere. Waters had fired original Floyd member Richard Wright during the wall sessions, so they did not have a keyboardist. Composer Michael Kamen filled that role, and that did not go well. So the album was released in 1983. And as of now is their second lowest selling album. Melody Maker magazine called it a milestone in the history of awfulness. 
<laughs> and yet, not surprisingly, Rolling Stone loved it, calling a superlative achievement. Whatever. Nobody cares. So they're at this crossroads. Waters is burnt out from the last several years as he takes on, or more to the point, insists that he alone is responsible for the lion's share of the workload. Gilmore is frustrated from his lack of input. And Nick Mason, the longtime drummer, is just kind of there, hoping <laughs> that whatever happens, he still has a job. <laughs> so after several months of deliberations, they all turn to some solo projects, much needed solo projects. They all kind of abandoned what they were doing, way to clear their heads, vent their frustrations, whatever it was, it was not effective. They reconvened in 1985 and knowing that he would probably get sued by the label because they still had contractual obligations and probably get sued by his bandmates for dissolving the Floyd, Roger Waters resigned from the band. First, though, he fired their longtime manager, Steve O'Rourke, and puts out a press release that says Pink Floyd is a spent creative force. In private, they all meet. Gilmore announces his intention to continue Pink Floyd, and he wants Roger's blessing. Roger, in return, tells him that, quote, they will never make a record without him, which lights the fire under David Gilmore's ass. And shortly <laughs> after the meeting, Gilmore puts out a statement that says, Roger is a dog in a manger, and I'm going to fight him. So all that set up to get to the album in question, a momentary lapse of reason. So first thing I notice about this album right away, mood change. Huge mood change. Big mood change. While this, it still sounds angry in places, stuff like Dogs of War. Yo, absolutely. Yet another movie. And rightfully so with all, with everything going around at the time with them, it should be angry, right? It should be, it should be an angry record. Yeah. But there's a tension that's not there anymore. So I always felt, this is my personal opinion, I always felt from Dark Side of the Moon on, the albums of Floyd got more and more stressful. The underlying current of anger was there, but it was a stressful anger. Okay. The anger on this record seems more direct, like it's pointed at someone. It's not just ever-present. It's, it's very direct. Obviously, because this record carried most, if not all, of David Gilmore, it would naturally sound more relaxed for the most part anyway. He's a pretty relaxed guy. He's a proper British gentleman. If you listen to him in interviews, even when he's really pissed off, he still sounds polite and in control. Yeah. Right? So they, and they being David Gilmore, drummer Nick Mason, and producer Bob Ezrin, gather on Gilmore's houseboat on the Thames, called the Astoria. It's a 90-foot moored houseboat that's basically a floating studio on the river. It was originally built as like a, a luxury houseboat for somebody in 1910, yeah, I want to say. It's yeah. really old at this point. Yeah. But then they had converted it into a boat recording studio. Yeah, had it all refurbished which, and whatnot. I mean, really, like you were saying, you know, this is much less of an angry album. How can you record an angry album on a boat? You can't. You can't be. You can't be really angry on a boat. No, you got I don't think that's possible. Kids rowing by. Yeah. You got geese flying around. <laughs> yeah, just generally, you know, it's complete reversal of what's going on in their career at the moment. Yeah. High tension, high tension stuff going on, and then houseboat to record, and it's pretty. It's pretty perfect. Yeah. Right. 
Gilmore comes in, he's got a ton of solo material to try and utilize. And if you know anything about um, David Gilmore's solo records, other than the most recent two, Rattle That Lock and On an Island, they're pretty much trash. <laughs> about Face and his self-titled album are just, they're just not very good. Even with a bevy of uh, additional artists, Clapton even appeared at one point. They're just not good. They're just not written very well. They're they're duds. I don't think I've ever heard any of them. So I'll that's probably uh... yeah. They're not uh, they're not good. Uh, but ever the pragmatist that D- David Gilmore is, he wisely decides to enlist the help of many different musicians. The antithesis of Flo- of what Floyd was for years, other than the occasional saxophone player and background singers, it was usually just the four: Gilmore, Waters, Mason, Wright. Speaking of Richard Wright, he came back. I mentioned earlier that he was fired during World, uh, the Wall for drugs and laziness, what have you, basically just not being very present. Gilmore decides that it would be a good idea. And of course, another slap in the face to Waters <laughs> to bring him back in. But he doesn't bring him in as a full member because a clause in his contract says he can't be reinstated as a full member. So he hires him as a ses- session musician, which is great. For $11,000 a week. Right? I could <laughs> I could work for that. Right? I think I could struggle through for that. Right? Richard Wright would say, what, he'd say years later that he was probably the only person on that entire tour that made money. Yeah. Because it was such a costly effort to take that show on the road. Oh, yeah. That he just kept getting his money. Yeah. So he was, like, cashing in. Just the lighting rig alone. Like, obviously, I didn't see this when it toured, but... Looking at the lighting rig, pictures of the lighting rig and pictures of the, the sound rig and all the special effects stuff that they had for this tour, especially at the time, because there wasn't like nobody had done stuff like this up to that point. Nope. It was it, it must have just been this massive undertaking to move that around. It was a massive stage. Yeah, it was that huge lighting ring, the circle. Yeah, yeah. that thing looks cool. It was very cool. Did you get to see this in concert? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So uh, he could um, write basically didn't contribute all that much to the finished project, the product anyway. More on that later. Uh, Nick Mason would also make very limited contributions to the record mm. until later. He basically was non-existent drumming wise and focused, started to focus on sound effects yeah. more than drums. Boings and springs. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's just uh, whenever I hear the word sound effects, I think uh, boings and sproings. Boings and sproings. So you can tell that from the first song on the record, Signs of Life. There's yeah. all the paddle boat and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. And that is sound effect wise. That's that's Nick Mason, uh, the weird kind of ethereal vocals in the background, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, one thing you notice right away on this song is that like Gilmore or this album, Gilmore's willingness to allow other people's input and ideas, willing to share credit and have multiple songwriters, which is very different. Yeah. As an aside at this moment, while all this is happening, their lawyers are in court constantly with Roger Waters. Waters is recording an album of his own at the exact moment called Radio Chaos. So he's involved in, they're all involved in court battles and they're both recording these disparate records. After Signs of Life uh, is the first single from the record, Learning to Fly. 
And I remember so distinctly like hearing and seeing this song for the first time on MTV in this the summer of 1987. Video was shot from the perspective of the plane and, and yeah. the guy, and it was literal interpretation of the song itself. Um, Gilmore had started taking flying lessons uh, in the interim as a diversion from legal battles, musical troubles. Because that's what wealthy people do. You take, and Nick Mason had also taken yeah. flying lessons. That's what you do. You right. take flying lessons. I'm quite bored. Uh, why don't I take some flying I lessons? Would. Sounds like a good idea. Hmm, why not? I buy myself a fancy barnstorming plane from World little, War Two. You know, a little uh, World War Two airplane. Pay someone to maintain it. He said that he stated that the song was a metaphor for taking on the new challenge of leading Pink Floyd. the song ironically directed by Storm Thorgerson, creator of Hypnosis. Yeah. More on him later. <laughs> Go ahead. You have something? Oh, there? I was just going to say that uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this was that uh, uh, he actually developed it from a demo that uh, John Karen made in 1986 that uh, John Karen says uh, uh, was influenced. He can't remember. It was either influenced by uh, Steve Jansen Mm-hmm. Or uh, Yukihiro Takahashi from Yellow Magic Yellow. Orchestra, which is a really like they creep up so frequently in the late 80s and early 90s because they were such early pioneers of that sort of electronica sound. Mm-hmm. And it's very odd to me because I've known who Yellow Magic Orchestra is for a very long time. They're kind of I don't want to say they're obscure, but they're not well known. Mm-hmm. To a lot of people, and it's unusual to see them crop up, especially when it's very well-known and famous musicians that they're like, "Oh yeah, we were influenced by this." Mm-hmm. And it's like, why, why do not, why do more people not know who they are and why they exist? And the only reason I've ever been able to come up with is because they didn't have uh, exposure in the U.S. Sure, and they were very exposed in the U.K. and in Europe. But they had so little exposure in the U.S. But it's all about the so U.S. Was kind of a, that was a, kind of an aside. But I thought it was interesting doing some research into this. That it was like, oh yeah, no, yeah, they I, are again. I appreciate the asides. The asides are good. I like the asides. Oh, good. I just have to remember not to turn aside. Don't when turn I do aside. Yeah, don't make Randy upset. So what? What's evident on the first song is that this is definitely an album produced in the 1980s. Yes, everything is big, expansive cavernous soaked in reverb the whole thing every effect every drum every sound has this big arena yeah like hollow sound which it's one of the things that i really like about this record a lot of people don't and and say that it dates it and maybe they use it too much but it gives it a certain quality that 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 i love that i that i loved about this record 
I think that that's okay that it dates it too. Like I said everybody, the same thing. everybody always says that they're like, Oh, this sounds so dated. And this sounds so, well, of course it sounds dated. It was made in the eighties. It's supposed it was to sound made, dated. It was made in the sound of the eighties. Like yeah. the guitars on this album. So remind me of the theme song to uh, lethal weapon. Interesting. Just like every time I hear uh, uh, the, I can't think, I can't think of how to describe it all of a sudden. Uh, it's kind of that long, like, guitar noise. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess that's how I would describe it. The theme song to Lethal Weapon uses that same kind of a, a noise. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how to describe it. I don't have the no, musical. That's pretty good. I don't have the musical vocabulary to describe it. But, uh, it's very, um, that's what it reminds me of. And it's, it's very, it is very eighties. The second you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, this was definitely made sometime in the mid to late eighties, but that's okay. That's you. I, I feel like that's not a negative. That's a, yes, it was made in the late eighties. Think about it that way and take that as a, a given, right? Take it as a, a, a I totally just derailed my train of thought. Take it, it as is a, what a it given. Is. Yeah, it is what it is. I wrote that many pages later, and I said, I'm tired of the 80s bashing. It's like, yeah, it's 80s. So what? That's that's the way it sounded yeah. back then. Like, I could do the same thing about 60s music. Yeah. Ah, it sounds so mono. Well, it is. Oh. It was recorded in mono. What a surprise. Well, well that's weird. Well, I don't <laughs> like it. My argument is this music doesn't sound exactly like the music we're making today, damn it. Uh, and all of it needs to just be this this bland now, uh, thing that sounds exactly the same as it does now. Right. Which is just uh, it's Which just is garbage. Stupid. It's garbage. It's garbage and it's stupid. Stupid. Uh, so next song is Dogs of War, which is probably the only song on the record that I really I really just don't have a taste for. I've never enjoyed this song. It does feel a little out of place even on this album. <laughs> There's a couple of elements on the song I like, like the chugging kind of train song, like the that or the sound kind of propelling it forward. Yeah. I do like that. But it it mimics money from Dark Side of the yes. Moon almost all the way through. The sax solo. I know, okay. Hold on. Oh boy. I might offend I'm I feel like I'm I'm probably gonna offend somebody oh boy. out there. And maybe this is my goal all along. Saxophones in rock music, just never the twain should have met. Like there are, there are places where I love it. Okay. Like, uh, like Bob Seger, saxophone Joe is Heather calls him. His name is Alto Reed, but she calls him (laughs) saxophone Joe. Um, Springsteen with Clarence Clemens. Baker street has its place, Right. I love the saxophone in jazz. I, I believe it belongs there. But in, you're talking like art rock or prog rock or something like this. It this is working. It is such a pedestrian instrument for for what they're trying to to sound like. And I know that sounds bad. I do love the saxophone. It has its place in certain things, but not here. And that's oh. I can't stand it. I've always hated it in, in every time, every time, like, please don't, please don't play. And I, I, as a, as a child listening to music through the eighties, 
you know, with Rush being my favorite band, all I did was hold out hope every record. Like, please don't have a saxophone solo on this record. Please don't have sax. I don't want to have to disown this. Like, I, I just for the love of God, just don't put a saxophone solo on here. And, and to their credit, they never did. So we dodged that so, bullet. So what I'm hearing here is that you think that this song is too horny. That is what I'm trying to say. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly what I'm trying to say. I just, uh, just, uh, it just drives me nuts. So you got the sax solo, and then this call and response for the voice and the yeah. guitar, and it sounds like money, and you just back and forth with the damn saxophone. I just, uh, this is uh, this is another one of those rare events where uh, this song is, like I said, I don't think it fits in this album well, and it's kind of a an awkward. Uh, in between the other two songs, uh, in between uh, One Slip and uh, why can't I think of the name of the second Learning song? Learning to Fly. Learning to Fly. Thank you. Uh, it's kind of a weird fit in between those two. But this is uh, one of those rare instances where there's a cover of this that I actually love. Really? By a band called Leibach. 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 They're a Slovenian industrial band. Can you uh, spell that for me? Yeah, it's a L-E-I- I'm sorry, L-A-I-B-A-C-H, Leibach. Uh, from the the album is NATO, N-A-T-O, from 1994. And it, okay. how do I put this? They're kind of an avant-garde industrial sounding band. Mm-hmm. And the, the lead singer's voice sounds a lot like the lead singer from Rammstein. <laughs> and he just, he, he's, he's yelling duhashed over and over <laughs> again. He's just, he literally is just reading... Like he has the plainest, flattest delivery of the lyrics, and it's much it's much faster than uh, the Pink Floyd version too. Okay, so he's just like the dogs of war, <laughs> and like it is so it is just this flat delivery. But it's a totally it sounds like a totally different song, and you're like, oh yeah, this makes more sense. It's not a great song by any means, but it's uh it makes a lot more sense to me than this version of it. Yes, this for the subject matter in play. The saxophone just, mm, yeah, mm, 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 just weakens it. Just, it's just no good. It's just no good. The not so sexy sax. Can you, uh, you put a link in the oh, show yeah, notes? Absolutely. I'll for, put a link in the show notes for, for you guys to find that song. So, <laughs> so, speaking of one slip, that's the next song. Yes. Right. Which is uh, Gilmore's attempt, uh, kind of a straight ahead rock song with fairly overt, somewhat sexually suggestive lyrics yeah which out of character and it's a great song that benefits greatly i think from the reverb yes so i may have mentioned to you uh a while ago that last year pink floyd put out a remixed version of this entire record uh included in a box set called the later years Mm -hmm. um essentially uh rick wright and nick mason played very little on the original recordings um, Gilmore in his later years felt like he should try to restore what their contribution, uh, what their contributions should have been. So he resurrected a lot of the parts that Wright had played and buried in the mix or had not used at all. He just had recorded and just kept them separate. So, and, and then in 2009, Nick Mason recorded new versions of every single drum track on this record. 
Wow. And when they remixed it last year, they replaced all of the originals with his tracks. So they removed almost all, and too much in my opinion, of uh, almost all of the reverb that gave this record kind of its sound. And it's really, it's drier, tighter, and frankly, not as good because you took some of that element out. This song, One Slip, is the one that suffers most from that loss of the verb. Yeah. It's, um, the digital noises and flicks that are kind of present throughout are almost all gone. Really? Yeah, the bass is dried up, not as punchy, and the drums are Nick Mason, and he tries to oversimplify a part that is complicated and necessitated that complication. And uh, it's a... So they George lucas it. Pretty much. They they revisited it <laughs> so much that they episode won the hell out of oh, it. Oh, that's unfortunate. And it's just, yeah, it's just no no bueno. Hmm. And and drying up the, all that verb, like I can understand taking it down a couple notches, but it's but it's so flat now. And the the other song that suffered the most from it is the next song, On the Turning Away. And I loved this song for years. Uh, the guitar work is just yeah. exquisite. It sounds like if you listen to it, I was listening to it uh, today again when I went on a walk, and you can hear like this um, this keyboard part, like way in the background, that almost makes it sound like a Celtic song. Yes, which is it's so unique and interesting, and in how it builds. There's no real bridge. It just kind of builds and builds. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's something about it until that very last, like it it literally does build until that very slow fade out at the end. Yeah. Which is all just him like doing what David Gilmore does, like playing the guitar. Like very few people can. It's a sin that somehow light is changing to shadow and casting Shroud over all we have known All the world how the rains have grown Driven on by a heart of stone We could find that we're all alone In the dream of I was, I tried to find a little bit more information about this And I, I probably just didn't dig deep enough in the right sources But do you know if there's actually any like Irish or like Scottish influence in this song. I couldn't find any reference to it other than, other than hearing it. And it's, it sounds like a a Celtic. Yeah. And I had read uh, some like uh, user peer reviews of it, Mm -hmm. not critical reviews of it, of people going and I hear like, it sounds Celtic. There's, there's something to that. And I don't know if it's just the way the chords are structured or if there's actually some intention behind it, but I haven't been able to find anything. Like I've read, I've read three or four Pink Floyd biographies, and but I haven't been able to find any reference to that in there. So uh, hmm. the other relevance of this, the one it took out such a big importance, was uh, because of the song lyrics around 1991 and the first Gulf War. This was used as a very anti-war yeah. song, which was a very big deal. Uh, especially then, because I was 19 and, you know, we're going in the Gulf. 
all my friends and me are like instantly worried about, is there going to be a draft? Or yeah. Am I going to have to go fight in a war over oil fields? And, and this song took up, took a very um, prominent role for probably two, three months around it's that time in 91. It's interesting to me that it's uh it's about every 10 years that that happens. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Thanks government. Early nineties, early two thousands. Mm. 2012 2013 great 2020 ish mm. hmm. interesting someone's Weird. running out of money yeah um and this was also the closest thing uh closest to Prague, progressive rock mm. that floyd would ever get to again yeah um and that's kind of where i was at the moment and i in 87 i was heavy into progressive rock and stuff like that so this this song this really resonated for me because because this song was in that kind of category. But then the 2019 redo that they released, you know, <laughs> took it took the sting out of everything. It did. They used an alternate uh they used an alternative uh vocal take mm. for it and dried the whole song up. The acoustic guitar comes in about like maybe 12 bars before it does in the original version oh, so it's, it lightens it up so much that it's just like it, it doesn't it doesn't carry the 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 gravity anymore it doesn't carry the weight that that song carried it's it's now it's a power ballad mm. instead of like this this heavy song so it's unfortunate mm. so after uh on the turning away is what i consider to be my favorite song on this Ooh. record Yet another movie is just. This is a. I love this song. This is an opener to the B side, right? Yes. Of the the vinyl. Yes. It's a uh, beginning of that song is so cool, ominous sounding. Every time I listen to it uh, in the car on the way home from work, like it shakes every p- piece of plastic in the car right yeah. at the beginning. Like, I love it, and in the headphones, mind blower. Yeah. Love that song. That's that's I think the way that you have to enjoy Pink Floyd is with a set of good headphones. I on. agree. And it's most likely the song that defines kind of the sound of the record for me. Plenty of reverb, lots of sound effects, lots of stuff going on. And the guitar solo is like it's a stunner. Just I love it. it just yeah. keeps going. It's just so good. I didn't know that the, uh, I, I knew that I recognized like the, there's, uh, vocal clips from Casablanca mm-hmm. in the background. In the background and I, yeah. I could not for the life of me place them when I was listening to it for the first time in a while, a couple of weeks ago, yeah, or maybe a month ago now. Uh, I was like, what movie are those from? What movie is that from? Like, I know all those lines, but I couldn't place them. I actually had to look it up and I was like, oh yeah. Dummy. Casablanca. Casablanca. I love it. You dummy Kyle. <laughs> uh, Can't remember anything. Round and round is just kind of a connector piece. It yeah, I was about to say, do you even consider it as uh, another track? No, because on the vinyl, it's considered as one track. Yeah, they 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 split, split it, up it up for some up. reason. Yeah. Uh, new machine uh, parts one and two. Because I just kind of put those together. Yeah, a great little Floyd 
pieces yeah. that just tie things together. Good I read book, a, they're good bookends. Yeah. I read a review that said they had six years to write songs and this is the best they could do. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I think you're missing the point. <laughs> right? It's a connector piece. Yeah. It's not to it's not meant to be, I'm only gonna listen to a new machine. <laughs> like that's ridiculous. And oh. it's just silly. Although I do think it has an interesting it has two interesting things to me. The first one is that it is like the concepts that are in that mm-hmm. in a new machine are they're kind of the perfect like transhumanist anthem. Ooh. Like the idea of, you know, I'm sick of this body and my mind is so much bigger. I just have deep. to find a way to get it out of this body. That's kind of what transhumanism is completely about. I like that. And it's it's one of those things where you know, this was happening. This is my second part of this is yeah. so often when you listen to this stuff later, like I'm listening to it now in 2020 and it's like, oh yeah, okay. That's an interesting little tidbit. When you think about it in the, the, uh, uh, frame of the time where it was made, that was so far ahead of what anybody else was thinking about. It was revolutionary. Mm. And that happens so often and so easily in music like and not to shoot off on a huge tangent again but the first time tangent away the first time i listened to uh i it was kind of starting to get into like david bowie and uh, uh uh like some of the bands that andy warhol helped discover velvet and underground somebody suggested velvet underground and i was like oh cool and they're like these guys influenced the sound of all rock music after they they came out and I was like, oh, cool. They've got to be completely revolutionary and something amazing. And I listened to them and I was like, oh. Yeah, be careful. If you listen to it when you're young, none of that makes sense. Yes. You exactly. listen to the Velvet Underground and you're like, this is pretty shitty. Yeah. And I don't get it. And it's very bland and it's very like, well, yeah, this is the sound that everybody had. So what? And no. then you have to you have to go back and realize when they were doing that, it was a sound that didn't exist yet. Right. It, they were coming up with all of that stuff. They were like, oh, yeah, this is the like uh, even uh, Sweet Jane, that kind of like great song, a uh, little like plucky guitar at the beginning. Lou Reed was a genius. Yeah. I mean, fantastic, mm-hmm. fantastic music. When you think about it from that, it's still a fantastic music. Even when you listen to it, at some point, we're going to cover that record. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's so good. Absolutely. That's that's on my short list. But again, so. that's uh, like listening to it as a youngster. Out of context. Yeah. It it doesn't, you're like, I don't, I can't relate to this. I, there, I have no point of reference. It doesn't sound like, what's well, a big deal. Yeah. And then go back and listen to it 30 years later. And you're like, holy crap, there's this in it. There's this in it. There's this in it. You can hear influences further down the tree. Yeah. Like, you're like, oh, oh, okay. And I kind of think that's where New Machine sits. That's interesting. A New Machine, excuse me. Both, no, the, both the beginning and end, uh, just because they they did a lot of experimental. The vocalization in this was, I well, believe, MIDI driven, which yeah. was like a totally new concept at the time. Yeah, he had a toy. He had a new toy. Exactly. And he was playing with it a lot. And he loved how it was treating his vocals and stuff. Yeah. And uh, he was having a blast yeah. just kind of playing around with it. Like that's and isn't that what the best innovators do anyway? Oh, yeah. Is that you just you noodle around and you're like until you find something that sounds good. And that's, that's kind of where you, from there you expand on it. Yeah. 
I just and they're they're great little pieces. They're per they're perfect little Floydian pieces. Floydian. Floydian. A, a, a Floydian slip. Floydians. Um <laughs> after that is Terminal Frost. This song gives me fits. Gives you fits? It gives me fits. On one hand, I absolutely love it. It fits with the rest of the record and all and lose the sax. <laughs> so what I was about to say is, hey, but with the your s- favorite saxophone with came the back. sax and especially the sax solo for about 40 seconds, I feel like I'm watching like a sex scene to an Al Pacino thriller in the 80s. <laughs> you know, you never see anything and it's over before it starts and you didn't really want to be involved in it one way or the other. But there it is. Was and you're there, like, God damn it. Was there about a, a half of a half a second shot of Al Pacino's sweaty face? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see uh, it's just a it's just a really bad idea. That solo is just a really bad idea for like 40 seconds. <laughs> and then I'm sitting there going, for all the remixing of the new out the new record, 2019, you couldn't lose that section. Like you couldn't, you you took you took away the thick drums, you took away the digital programming, but you leave in the cheaty, the the cheesy 80s sax solo, for God's <laughs> sakes. It drives me nuts. Because otherwise. And, and this is one of the songs that Gilmore brought from his solo material. Yeah, this is this had been around He'd for a while, quite a while before this. You couldn't just just leave that crap out. <laughs> I, I try. I, mm. This was also uh, a new machine in uh, Terminal Frost, where the the songs that they didn't always play on the tour for this, right? Correct. There yeah, was sort of a. I don't know that they ever played Terminal Frost live. Oh, really? They may have, but they didn't on that tour. Interesting. And I may have been too high to remember what they played the second time. So <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> it's one of those. Um, and then uh, the last track, Sorrow. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, just wow. This is probably some of the best lyrics David Gilmore ever wrote. And see, everyone hated the lyrics yeah. to this song, which is hilarious. And I've heard people have heard me say this before. Like the guitar at the beginning of this record is by far my favorite guitar tone of all time from any record from any band. That two minutes 
of him alone playing that guitar lick at the very beginning is just, um, it gives me goosebumps to this day. So he recorded it. Uh, he recorded it in the Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles Memorial Sports mm-hmm. uh, Arena Coliseum. And he recorded it by himself through the PA at top volume with nobody present in that arena. So it's just this just massive, just cavernous sound. And it's every time, every time I hear it, I get goosebumps. And I, I, I challenge anyone to listen to the first 90 seconds of that song and not get the same. It is pretty amazing. It's just such an, just a huge sound. I love it. It is crazy to me too, that you can't at the time, obviously there was no way to do it, but even today it is very hard to digitally manipulate something to sound like that. Mm, mm -hmm. You can get close, but you can still hear a difference. It's uh, it's pretty fascinating that, the, the the way to do it is to still set something up in a giant cavernous space and, and have the real life reverb and echo in the space just recorded. And it, it sounds amazing. And thankfully they didn't, when they remixed it, they didn't mess with that. Oh, part that's good because it's, it's so perfect for that song. Yeah. And I've read the lyrics are shit, blah, blah, blah. See, and I totally disagree with that. I think the lyrics are amazing. I agree with you. It was a it was a poem before it was uh, uh, incorporated it's, into the song. Right, one so. of the first first ones that he ever wrote the lyrics before he wrote the music, yeah. which which is cool. But I've read a bunch of people like it's too long. Mm. It's a too long of a song. Eight minutes and forty five seconds is too long. I'm like, what? Shine on you, crazy diamond is 19 minutes long. Apparently, that's okay. But eight and a half minutes of this, I don't want to hear it. It's like people. It's just I. I get to that at the end, but I'm just people just find a reason to complain, and that's part of the thing. So there's some uh, additional items about this record. Ooh. I had mentioned uh, Storm uh, Thorgerson directed the music yes. video for Learning to Fly. He was also the art director on the cover art and packaging. I uh, took a line from yet another movie about, uh, quote, a vision of an empty bed. And he said, how about 700 beds? <gasps> That's so many beds. So he lined 700 beds in the Saunton Sands in Devon, England. Took the picture like a river of empty beds. <laughs> and it's a striking cover when you realize it was done practically. Yeah. No Photoshop. 700 beds. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just a ridiculous thing to even conceptualize now. Like, oh, you want 700 beds on a cover? Well, I could do that right now. Hold copy, on. copy, paste, <laughs> copy, paste, 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 paste. Like, oh, you don't, I don't need to find 700 hospital beds in England and ship them to Devon? No? Oh. Just the logistics of doing something like that. Just... Okay, so we're going to find these beds. Right. And then we're going to get them all together in one place and then load them on a truck and ship them all out in the middle of a sand dune. Right. And then line them up like a river and hope the weather cooperates and then take take some pictures. It'll be great. I'm like, (laughs) what? Um. In addition to that, the inner gatefold of this uh, has a picture of David Gilmore and Nick Mason, 
the first photo of the band on a record since 1971. Wow. Which was more or less another F you to Roger Waters <laughs> saying, this is Pink Floyd. And that's exactly what that was. That was a, oh, well, you're not around. So what do you care? Yeah. And it was, ugh, it was mm, so good. <laughs> so the lawsuit, lawsuit surrounding the band would be finally settled in November of 87 when Waters uh, withdrew his complaint. Uh, I'm sure it would have been very difficult for him to continue uh, the suit with his limited resources against the full force of Pink Floyd's resources, yeah. which he was not privy to anymore. But it did not, him rescinding the uh, lawsuit <coughs> did not stifle the animosity. Yeah. Uh, they still don't get along. They tolerate each other. They're old men now. They don't, <laughs> but they don't get along. Um, they both went on tour roughly at the same time. Um, Waters playing small theaters. Floyd playing in colossal stadiums, sometimes playing in the same city on the same night. Oh, geez. Waters would ban anyone having to do with the other tour from coming to see his. <laughs> it's classy. He's, he's not petty at all. No, he doesn't sound like it. Incidentally, the Floyd tour <laughs> would run uh, well over 100 dates. Gross over $135 million Whoa. in 1988 money. That is huge. Over two years. And be recorded on A Delicate Sound of Thunder, released as a live album. And also one of the greatest concert experiences of my life. Uh, I saw that at the Palace of Auburn Hills in Michigan. It was the second concert ever played there because it had opened that summer. And Pink Floyd was never invited back because there was, by the time it was over, there was this haze of blue smoke <laughs> because that, that show was so massive and there was so much going on, but it was, it's a life changing experience to see that, to see these songs that you grew up with and, and they're not, they're performed on a massive scale. Yeah. Everything, everything is thought about and it's a, it's so good. But Waters, while you know, shooting or doing his concert in these small theaters, still got his jabs in whenever he could. Uh, they asked about his, the new Floyd record, and he responded, uh, I think it's very facile, a quite clever forgery. The songs are poor in general. The lyrics, I can't quite believe. Gilmore's lyrics are very third rate. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> Which, of course, Richard Wright said later, that's fair. It's <laughs> like, hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So the reviews for the record for the past 30 years have been mixed hmm. reviews. The fans, though, have spoken 4 million copies, far outselling the final cut, the last record yeah. with Roger Waters. Rolling Stone was never a huge fan of Pink Floyd bagged on dark side when it was released, but we don't, we have grown not to expect too much of Rolling Stone. But hey, what, uh, what might be one of the most recognized albums of this era? Hate it. But the reviews uh, say it doesn't sound like Pink Floyd. 
What exactly does that mean? Does Dark Side of the Moon sound like the original version of the Floyd with Sid Barrett? Yeah. No. There are no remnants of astronomy, demean, and Piper at the gates of dawn in the wall. So what does it mean to not sound like Pink Floyd? To me, it's not a sound because it's evolved so much over the years, but it's a feeling. It's a quality. It's an unknown, intangible quality that defines a Floyd record that no other band sounds like that. It's almost impossible to define, but you know it when you hear it. Hmm. And that's exactly what I think about Pink Floyd. It doesn't matter that Sid Barrett left, that Roger Waters left, that Gilmore was added, that Wright was in and out, that you had replacement drummers, because that's not the overall sound of Pink Floyd. It's, there's, a, there's just a quality to it that you can't quite put your finger on. And to me, that's that's what <coughs> that's especially this record for me. Um, and it, it there's a there's a very um, I'm hoping people will eventually respond to this uh, type of treatment. But um, there's a personal element to it. Um, I know for me, uh, this record was one of three that I got on Christmas morning, 1987, when I got my first CD player. I got uh, this, uh, Yes's Big Generator, and Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation. And you don't forget that type of stuff. And I'm, I hope that people like will, will write in, people are starting to respond a little bit more about uh, how that kind of stuff resonates. I know it's a little different now and people might have to go back and go, what was the first song I downloaded digitally or for first album I downloaded digitally. But for me, there, there are very clear markers for, for what music meant to me at certain times. And this was a, a this was a very important record. Now you put it in the context of, of Pink Floyd's entire catalog and you're probably somewhere in the middle you know it's not the worst it's not the best take a lyric directly from the record you listen to it <laughs> he says that <clears throat> but but it's but it's life markers for you it's something you'll hear and recognize and whether someone says well it sounds like the 80s it's not as good <laughs> as other stuff eh, is it as good as other stuff to you because it is to me and that's that's the most important thing. Does it make you happy? Does it does it take you back to a moment in in, in your life that you were that you were happy and, and enjoying <coughs> listening to music and and taking that next step, you know, artist artistically and and really kind of like diving in and seeing what these artists had to say to you personally? Then then who cares if Rolling Stone says it's a pile of shit? Rolling Stone's a pile of shit. <laughs> So what well, difference does it make? Wait a minute. Are we not covering this up anymore that we think that they're a pile of shit? Oh, oh no, I, wait. That's right. We never have. Have I been covering it up? Oh, no. no. We never have. But that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's how I feel about it. That it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And, it, and that's really kind of been the lifeline. Um, we've only been doing this for seven months, but 
that's kind of the lifeline for me. It doesn't matter what you listen to. It doesn't matter if someone tells you what you're listening to is wrong or or what you're listening to is bad music. Hey, if it's important to you and it's impacted you, then it's good. And that's that's the big takeaway. This isn't the best Pink Floyd record, but it doesn't matter because it's important to me. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. That's beautiful. Oh, thanks. Brought one little single tear to my eye. <laughs> and that's a momentary lapse of reason by Pink Floyd. Uh, coming up soon, um, in a couple of weeks, we will have uh, Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's uh, Kyle's choice. I'm excited about that one. That one, uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be, uh, that one might, I might cry. That's okay. Talking about that because that was uh we'll we'll get to it when yeah, we get there. Yeah, we're but digging digging deep or going going back into the seventies. It's a deep cut. And then we'll probably come back up to a more recent time with another selection, but uh two weeks from now will be David Bowie. David Bowie. Um but in the meantime, uh continue to listen to our older episodes now that we have Please. like a fairly good selection of stuff at this point and continue to uh, get in touch with us. Uh, we have been getting, like Matthew said earlier, we've been getting a lot more comments. Uh, a lot of people have started to uh, email us and respond to us on uh, Twitter. And uh, I d- haven't logged into the Facebook in quite a while, but I assume that people are yeah. having some positive responses on there. So please do get in touch. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email either Matthew or Kyle at audiojudo.com. Or uh, info at audiojudo.com. If you want to send us some uh, notes uh, about any of the shows that you've listened to uh, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash audiojudo, Twitter at audiojudo, or twitter.com forward slash audiojudo, Instagram, we're at audiojudo. Uh, I don't know, have you posted any photos of the new studio yet? Are you going to wait until it's fully complete? Um, no, I don't think on the audio judo page. I don't think I have. I think I did on my personal Facebook yeah. account. Maybe, but maybe we'll have to wait until the new table comes in. Right in this set of this. Yeah, set of the old table. Yeah, maybe the old dinner table. Maybe it's like a poker table. We're or getting something. a I don't nice, know what We're it is. getting a nice table. Getting a cool guys. table. It's gonna be great. Um, but in the meantime, uh, put the headphones in. Keep yeah. listening to music. Tell us, tell us what you're listening to. Tell us what you're thinking about. Tell us a record that impacted you that that you want to hear uh, dug a little deeper. Maybe 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 there's things we can bring to light about a record that you love that you didn't even didn't even know about. Or maybe we can shit all over something that you love. Right? I'm maybe we could just tell you how lousy a record. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let us know what you think and uh, keep on listening. We appreciate it. Uh, and have a good uh, have a good couple of weeks, folks. Yeah. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? 
would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.